From MIT Technology Review, I'm Laurel Ruma, and this is Business Lab, the show that helps business leaders make sense of new technologies coming out of the lab and into the marketplace. Our topic today is decentralized data. Whether it's from devices, sensors, cars, the edge, if you will, the amount of data collected is growing. It can be personal and it must be protected. But is there a way to share insights and algorithms securely to help other companies and organizations and even vaccine researchers? Two words for you, swarm learning. My guest is Dr. Angling Go, who is the Senior Vice President and CTO of Artificial Intelligence at Hewlett Packard Enterprise. Prior to this role, he was CTO for a majority of his 27 years at Silicon Graphics, now an HPE company. Dr. Go was awarded NASA's Exceptional Technology Achievement Medal for his work on AI and the International Space Station. He has also worked on numerous artificial intelligence research projects, from F1 racing to poker bots to brain simulations. Dr. Go holds a number of patents and had a publication land on the cover of Nature. This episode of Business Lab is produced in association with Hewlett Packard Enterprise. Welcome, Dr. Go. Thank you for having me. So we've started a new decade with a global pandemic. The urgency of finding a vaccine has allowed for greater information sharing between researchers, governments, and companies. Uh, for example, the World Health Organization made the Pfizer vaccine's mRNA sequence public to help researchers. How are you thinking about opportunities like this coming out of the pandemic? In science and, and medicine and others, right, uh, sharing of findings uh, is an important part uh, of uh, advancing science. So the traditional way is publications, right? The, the thing is, in a year, year and a half of COVID-19, there has been a surge of publications uh, related to COVID-19. You know, one aggregator had, for example, of the order of 300,000 of such documents related to COVID-19 out there. It gets difficult, right, uh, because of the amount of data to be able to get what you need. So a number of companies, uh, organizations started to build these natural language processing tools, AI tools, uh, to, to allow you to ask very specific questions, not just search for keywords, but very specific questions so that you can get the answer that you need from this corpus of, uh, of documents out there. A scientist could ask, uh, you know, a researcher could ask, what is the binding energy of the SARS-CoV-2 spike protein to our ACE2 receptor and can be even more specific and saying, I want it in units of kcal per mole. And the system would go through, right? The NLP system would go through this corpus of documents and come up with an answer specific to that question and even point to the area of the documents, right, where the answer could be. So this is one area, right? To, to help with sharing, uh, you, you could build AI tools to help go through this enormous amounts of data that has been generated. The other area of, of sharing is a sharing of a clinical trial data, as you have mentioned. Early last year, before any of the uh, SARS-CoV-2 vaccine clinical trials have started, we were given uh, the yellow fever vaccine clinical trial data, and and even more specifically, right, the uh, gene expression data from the volunteers of of the uh, clinical trial. 
And one of the, the goals is, is can you analyze the tens of thousands of these genes being expressed by the volunteers and help predict for each volunteer whether he or she would get side effects from this vaccine and whether he or she will give good antibody response to this vaccine. So building predictive tool by sharing uh, these uh, clinical trial data, uh, albeit anonymized and in a a restricted way. When we talk about natural language processing, I think the two takeaways that we've taken from that very specific example are you can build better AI tools, right, to help the researchers. And then also um, it helps build predictive tools and models. Yes, absolutely. So as a specific example of what you've been working on for the past year, uh, Nature magazine recently published an article about how a collaborative approach to data insights can help these stakeholders, especially during a pandemic. What did you find out? during that work? Yes, this is uh, related, uh, again, to to the sharing point you you brought about, right? How how to share learning so that uh, the community can advance uh, faster. uh, The Nature uh, publication you mentioned, the the title of it is Swarm Learning. Uh, Let's use the hospital example. There is this hospital, uh, and it sees its, its patients, right? The hospital's patients of a certain demographic, right? Uh, and if it wants to build a machine learning model to uh, predict based on patient data, say, for example, uh, uh, patient CT scan data to try and predict certain outcomes. The issue with learning in isolation like this is uh, you, you, you start to, to evolve models through this learning of your patient data, uh, biased towards the demographics you are seeing, right? Or, and, or in, in other ways, biased towards the, the type of medical devices uh, you have the solution to this is to uh, collect data from different hospitals, maybe from different regions or even different countries, right? And then combine all these hospitals' data and then train the machine learning model on the combined data. The issue with this is is that uh, private patient data privacy of patient data prevents you from sharing that data. Swarm learning comes in to try and solve this in two ways, right? One, instead of collecting data from these different hospitals, we allow each hospital to train their machine learning model on their own private patient data. And then occasionally, a blockchain comes in. That's the second way. A blockchain comes in and collects all the learnings. I emphasize the learnings and not the patient data, right? Collect only the learnings and combine it with the learnings from other hospitals in other regions and other countries, average them, and then send back down to all the hospitals the updated, globally combined, averaged learnings. And by learnings, I mean uh, the parameters, for example, of the neural network weights, the parameters which are the neural network weights uh, in the machine learning model. So in this case, no patient data ever leaves an individual hospital. What leaves the hospital is uh, only the learnings, the parameters, or the neural network weights. And so after, when you set up your, your locally learned parameters and what you get back from the blockchain is the uh, global averaged uh, parameters, and then you update your model with the global average, and then you carry on learning locally again. After a few cycles of the sharing of learnings, uh, we've tested it. Uh, the, each hospital is able to predict uh, like as though it, with the accuracy and with reduced bias, like as though you have collected all the patient data globally in one place and learn from it. 
And the reason that blockchain is used is because it is actually a secure connection between various, in this case, machines, correct? There are two reasons, yes, uh, why we use blockchain. The first reason is uh, the, the security of it. Uh, and number two, and we can keep uh, that uh, information private because in a private blockchain, only uh, participants, uh, name participants or certified participants are allowed in this blockchain. Now, even if the blockchain is compromised, right, what is only seen are the weights or the parameters of the learnings, not the pr private patient data because the private patient data is not in the blockchain. And the second reason for using a blockchain, it is as opposed to having a central custodian that does the collection of the, uh, of the parameters of the learnings, right? Because once you uh, appoint a custodian, an entity that collects all these uh, uh, learnings, if one of the hospitals becomes that custodian, then you have a situation where that appointed custodian has more information than the rest, yeah, right? or have more capability than the rest. Not so much more information, but more capability than the rest. So in order to have a more, uh, more equitable sharing, we use a blockchain. And in the blockchain uh, system, what it does is that randomly appoints uh, one of the uh, participants as the collector, as the leader to collect the parameters, averaged it and send it back down. And in the next cycle, uh, randomly, another participant is appointed. So there's two interesting points here. One is this project succeeds because you are not using only your own data. Uh, you are allowed to opt into this relationship to use the learnings from other researchers' data as well. So that reduces bias. So that's one kind of large problem solved, but then also this other interesting issue of equity and how even algorithms um, can perhaps be less equitable from time to time. But when you have an intentionally random algorithm in the blockchain assigning leadership for the collection of the learnings from each entity, that helps strip out any kind of possible bias as well, correct? Yes, yes, yes. Uh, brilliant summary, Laura. Um, so th there is the first bias, which is if you are not, uh, if you are learning in isolation, a hospital is learning a neural network model, right? Or a machine learning model, uh, more generally, uh, of a hospital is learning in isolation only on their own private patient data. They will be naturally biased towards the demographics they are seeing. For example, uh, we have uh, an example where a hospital sees a lot of, uh, trains their machine learning models on chest x-rays and uh, sees a lot of uh, tuber uh, tuberculosis cases, but very little of lung collapse cases. So therefore, this neural network model, when trained, will be very sensitive towards detecting tuberculosis and less sensitive towards uh, detecting lung collapse, for example. However, you, you get, may get the converse right, uh, of it uh, you know, in another hospital. So what you really want is uh, to have these two co hospitals combine their data so that uh, uh, the resulting neural network model uh, can predict both uh, situations better. But since you can't share that data, uh, Swarm Learning comes in to help reduce that bias right, on, of both the hospitals. All right. So we have an enormous amount of data and it keeps growing exponentially as the edge, which is really any data generating device system or sensor expands. So how is decentralized data changing the way companies need to think about data? 
Oh, that, that's a, a profound question, right? Um, there is one estimate that says that by uh, the year, by next year, by the year 2022, there will be 50 billion connected devices at the edge, right? I mean, we are coming to a point, and this is growing fast, right? And we're coming to a point that we, we have an average of about 10 connected devices potentially uh, collecting data per person in this, in, in this world, right? Given that situation, the center of gravity will shift from the data center being the uh, main location generating data to one where the center of gravity will be at the edge, right, uh, in terms of where data is generated. And this will change dynamics uh, tremendously for enterprises. Uh, you will therefore see the need for, for these devices that are out there uh, where this enormous amount of data generated at the edge with so much uh, of these devices out there that they'll reach a point where you cannot afford to backhaul or bring back all that data to the cloud or data center anymore. And, and what do you therefore do? Even with 5G, right, 6G and so on, you know, the growth of data will outstrip that, will, will far exceed that of the growth in bandwidth of these new capabilities, uh, new telecommunication capabilities. As such, you reach a point where you have no choice but to push the intelligence to the edge so that you can decide what data to move back uh, to the cloud or data center. So this, this is uh, going to be a new age, right? The world will shift from one where you, you have centralized data where we are, what we've been used to uh, for, for decades, the one where you have to be comfortable with data being everywhere, right? And when, when that's the case, you need to do more peer-to-peer -peer, uh, communications, more peer-to-peer -peer collaboration, more peer-to-peer -peer learning. And that's the reason why Swarm Learning will become more and more important as, you, uh, as this progresses, right? As the center of gravity shifts out there to one where data is centralized, uh, from one where data is centralized to one where data is everywhere. Could you talk a little bit more about how Swarm Intelligence is secure by design? In other words, it allows companies to share insights from data learnings with outside enterprises or even within groups in a company, but then they don't actually share the actual data. Yes. Fundamentally, when we want to learn from each other, one way is we share the data so that each of us can learn from each other. What Swarm Learning does is to try and avoid that sharing of data to one where, or, or, or totally uh, prevent the sharing of data to one where you only share the insights, you share the learnings, right? And that's why uh, it, it is fundamentally more secure using this approach, right? where data is stays where it is, stays private in the lo uh, location, Right and never leaves that private entity. What leaves that private entity are only the learnings. And in this case, uh, the neural network weights or the parameters of those learnings. Now, now, if there are people who are uh, researching the ability to deduce the data from the learnings, it is still uh, in research phase, uh, but uh, we are prepared if it ever works. Yeah, and that is in the blockchain. We do homomorphic encryption of the weights, of the parameters, of the learnings. Right? And by homomorphic, we mean um, you know, when, when the uh, appointed leader collects all these weights and then averages them, yeah, uh, he can average them in the encrypted form right? so that 
as uh, if someone intercepts the blockchain, they they see an encrypted uh, uh, learnings, right? They don't see the learnings themselves. But, but we've not implemented that yet uh, uh, because um, uh, we don't see it necessary yet. Until such time, uh, you know, we, we see that uh, being able to reverse engineer the data from the learnings uh, becomes uh, feasible. And so when we think about um, increasing rules and legislation surrounding data, like GDPR and California's CCPA, there needs to be some sort of solution to privacy concerns. Do you see Swarm Learning as one of those possible options as companies grow the amount of data they have? Yes, yes. Uh, uh, it's an option, right? Uh, firstly, if there is a need for um, edge devices to learn from each other, Swarm Learning is there, is, is useful for it. And, and number two, as you are learning, you do not want the data from each entity or participant in Swarm Learning to leave that entity, but it should only stay where it is. And what leaves is, uh, is only, you know, are only the, um, the parameters, uh, and, and the learnings. Um, you, you see that, uh, not, not just in the hospital scenario, but uh, you see that in finance, you know, credit card companies, for example. Of course, wouldn't want to share their customer data with another competitor credit card company, but they know that they are, uh, the learnings of the machine learning models locally, um, is not as sensitive to, to fraud data because they are not seeing all the different kinds of fraud. Perhaps they're seeing one kind of fraud, but a different credit card company might be seeing another kind of fraud. So Swarm Learning could be used here where each credit card company keeps their customer data private, no sharing of that, but a blockchain comes in and shares uh, the learnings, right? the fraud le- data learning, f- uh, and collect all those learnings Averaged it and giving back out uh, to all the the uh, participating credit card companies. So this is one example. Banks could do the same, all right? Um, uh, industrial robots could do that the same too, right? Uh, you know, we have um, a automotive customer that has uh, tens of thousands of industrial robots, but in different countries. Industrial robots today uh, follow instructions, but uh, in the next generation robots with AI. They will also learn locally, right? Um, and, and say, for example, to avoid certain mistakes, right? And not repeat them. Uh, what you can do using swarm learning is if these robots are in different countries where you cannot share data, sensor data from the, the local environment across country borders, but you're allowed to share the learnings of avoiding these mistakes, swarm learning can then be, for, uh, be applied. So you, you now imagine a swarm of industrial robots across different countries, sharing learning so that they don't repeat the same mistakes. So yes, in enterprise, you can see uh, different applications of Swarm Learning, you know, finance, engineering, and of course, uh, in healthcare, as we've uh, discussed. How do you think companies need to start thinking differently about their actual data architecture to encourage the ability to share these insights, but not actually share the data? First and foremost, you know, we, we need to be comfortable with the fact that uh, devices that are collecting data will proliferate right? and they will be at the edge where uh, the data first lands. What's the edge, right? The edge is where, where you have a device and where the data first lands uh, electronically. And if you uh, imagine 
you know, 50 billion of them next year, for example, and growing, right, uh, in, in one estimate. Uh, you, we need to be comfortable with the fact that data will be everywhere. And, and to design your uh, organization, uh, design the way you use data, design the way you access data uh, with that concept in mind, i.e. moving from one where, you know, we are used to, that is data being centralized most of the time, to one where data is everywhere. So the way you access data needs to, to be different now, right? Um, uh, you cannot now think of first aggregating all the data, pulling all the data, backhauling all the data from the edge to a centralized location, then work with it. We may need to switch to a scenario where we are operating on the data, learning from the data while the data is still out, are still out there. Yeah. So we talked a bit about healthcare and manufacturing. How do you also envision the big ideas of smart cities and autonomous vehicles fitting in with the ideas of swarm intelligence? Yes, yes, yes. Uh, that that's where uh, you know th- these are are two big. Uh, big items, right? And very similar also, right? You, you think of a, of a smart city, it is full of sensors, full of connected devices, right? You think of an autonomous cars, right? One estimate puts it at something like 300 sensing devices in a car, right? All collecting data. S- similar uh, way of thinking of it, right? Uh, data is going to be everywhere and collected in real time at these uh, edge devices, uh, for smart cities, it could be street lights, right? Uh, we work with one city with 200,000 street lights, right? And they want to make every one of these street lights smart, right? By smart, um, you know, I mean ability to, to make, uh, recommend decisions or, or even make decisions. You, you get to a point where, as I've said before, you cannot backhaul all the data all the time to the data center and make decision after you've done the aggregation. No, a lot of times you have to, uh, make decisions where the data is collected and therefore things have to be smart at the edge, number one. And if you take that step further beyond, uh, uh, you know, acting on instructions or acting on neural network models that have been pre-trained and then sent to the edge, right? You take one step beyond that and that is you want the edge devices to also learn on their own, right? From the data they have collected. However, knowing that uh, the data collected is biased to what they are only seeing, you know, swarm learning will be needed right, in a peer-to-peer way for these devices uh, to learn from each other. So this interconnectedness, the peer-to-peer interconnectedness of uh, these edge devices uh, requires us to rethink or, or change the way we think about uh, computing. Right. Just take for example, right? Uh, you know, uh, two con- two autonomous cars, right? I mean, we call them connected cars to start with. Uh, the, you know, uh, two connected cars, one in front of the other by you know three hundred yards, yeah, or, or, or three hundred meters, right? The the one in front with sen- lots of sensors in it, say for example in the shock absorbers, uh, sends a pothole, right? And it actually can offer that uh, sense data that there is a pothole coming up. Right, uh, uh, to the car behind, cars behind, right? And if the cars behind switch on to automatically accept uh, these, that pothole shows up on the car behind's uh, uh, dashboard. And the, the car behind just pays maybe 0.1 cent for that, uh, for that information, right? To the car in front. So you, you get a situation where you get this peer to peer sharing, right? Uh, in real time without 
needing to, to send all that data first back to some central location and then sending back down the, uh, the new the information to the, to the car behind. Right? So you want it uh, to be peer-to-peer. So more and more, I, I'm not saying this is implemented yet, but uh, this gives you an idea of how thinking uh, can change right? going forward. A lot more peer-to-peer uh, sharing and a lot more peer-to-peer learning. When you think about how long we've worked in the technology industry to think that peer-to-peer as a phrase has come back around where it used to mean um, people or even computers sharing various bits of information over the internet. Now it is devices and sensors sharing bits of information um, with each other and uh, it's sort of a a different definition of peer-to-peer. Yeah, thinking is changing, right? Uh, the, the, the the way we, we think about... Uh, well, and peer, right? The, the word peer, right? Peer-to-peer, meaning uh, it has the connotation of uh, uh, more equitable sharing in there, right? That, that's the reason why uh, a blockchain is needed in, in some of these cases, so that there is no central custodian uh, to, to average uh, the learnings, to combine the learnings. Yeah, so you, you want it uh, a true peer-to-peer uh, environment. And that's what Storm Learning is built uh, for. And now the reason for that, right, it's not because we feel peer-to-peer is the next big thing, right, and therefore we should do it. It it is because of data, right, and the proliferation of these devices that are collecting data. You imagine, right, I mean, tens of billions of these out there and every one of these devices getting to be smarter uh, and consuming less energy to be that smart, right? Um, and, and moving from one where they follow instructions or, or infer from the neuro, pre-trained neural network model given to them, right, to one where they can even advance towards learning on their own, but knowing that these devices are so many of them out there, therefore they're only, each of them are only seeing a small portion, small is still big, right, uh, if you combine the, all of them, 50 billion of them, but each of them is only seeing a small proportion of data. And therefore, if they just learn in isolation, they will be highly biased towards what they're seeing. As such, there must be some way where they can share their learnings without having to share uh, their their private data, right? Uh, And therefore, swarm learning. As opposed to backhauling all that uh, data from the 50 billion edge devices back to these uh, cloud locations or data center locations so they can do the combined learning which would cost certainly more than a fraction of a cent. <laughs> oh, yes. Uh, you know, uh, there is a saying, right? Uh, uh, bandwidth, you pay for. Latency, you sweat for. Right? <laughs> yeah. Uh, so it's, it's cost. Uh, bandwidth is cost. Yeah. Yeah. So as an expert in artificial intelligence, while we have you here, what are you most excited about in the coming years? What, what are you seeing that you're, you're thinking – that is going to be something big in the next five, ten years. Uh, th- thank you, Laurel. I, uh, yeah, I don't, I don't see myself as an expert in AI, but one that is, uh, that is uh, a person that is being tasked, right, uh, or and excited about uh, working with customers on AI use cases and learning from them, right? The diversity of these uh, different AI use cases and learning from them. Um, some. Uh, leading teams directly working on the projects and some uh, overseeing, right, some of uh, the, the projects. But um, in, in terms of the excitement, 
actually may seem mundane, right? And that is, I, I the exciting part is that I see AI, right? The ability for systems to, uh, smart systems to learn and adapt uh, and and in in many cases uh, provide decision supports to human and in other more limited cases make decisions uh, in support of human right the proliferation of ai in in every in everything we do right and in many things we do right certain things maybe uh we should limit but in many things we do i mean let's let's just use the most uh, the simplest uh, the, the most basic of examples right how this progression uh, could be Let's take a light switch. In the early days, right, uh, uh, even until today, right, uh, the, the, the most basic light switch is one where it is manual. Uh, a human goes ahead, throws the switch on, and the light comes on, and throws the switch off, and the light goes off, right? Then we move on to the next level, right? If you want an analogy, right? More next level where we automate that switch. We put a set of instruction on that switch to, uh, with a light meter and set the instruction to say, if the lighting in this room drops to 25% of its peak, switch on. So basically, we, we gave an instruction with a sensor to go with it to the, to the switch. And then the switch is now automatic. And then uh, when the lighting in the room drops to 25% of its peak, of the peak uh, uh, illumination, it, uh, it switches on the lights. So now the switch is automated. Now, we can even take a step further in that automation by making the switch smart in, in that it can have many more sensors and then through the combinations of sensors, make decision as to whether the switch light on. And to control all these sensors, we build a neural network model that has been pre-trained separately and then downloaded onto the switch. This is where we are at today. The switch is now smart. Smart city, you know, uh, smart street lights, autonomous cars, and so on. Now, is there another level beyond that? There is. And that is when the switch not just follows instructions or not just have a new trained neural network model to decide in a, more, uh, in a way to combine all the different sensor data to decide when to switch the light on in a more uh, precise way. Uh, it, it advances further to one where it learns. That's the key word, right? It learns from mistakes. What would be the example? The example would be based on the neural network model it has that was pre-trained previously, downloaded onto the switch with all the settings. It turns the light on. But when the human comes in, the human says, you know, I don't need the light on here it's, it's, I, for, for, for this time around. The human switches the light off. Then the switch realizes that it actually made a decision that the human didn't like. So it's, after a few of these, it starts to adapt itself learn from these, right? Adapt itself so that it can switch the light on to the changing human preferences. That's the next step, right? Where you want edge devices that are collecting data at the edge to learn from those, right? Then, of course, uh, if you take that even further, all the switches in, 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 your, uh, in this office or in uh, a residential uh, unit uh, learns from each other. Right, that that would be song learning. So if you if you then extend the switch to toasters, to fridges, to to cars, to industrial robots, and so on, you know, uh, you will see that uh, doing this, yeah, we would will clearly uh, reduce energy consumption, reduce waste, yeah, um, and, and improve productivity 
but the key must be for for human good. Yeah. And what a wonderful way to end our conversation. Thank you so much for joining us on the Business Lab. Thank you, Laurel. Much appreciated. That was Dr. Engling Go, Senior Vice President and CTO of Artificial Intelligence at Hewlett Packard Enterprise, who I spoke with from Cambridge, Massachusetts, the home of MIT and MIT Technology Review, overlooking the Charles River. That's it for this episode of Business Lab. I'm your host, Laurel Ruma. I'm the Director of Insights, the custom publishing division of MIT Technology Review. We were founded in 1899 at the Massachusetts Institute of Technology. And you can find us in print, on the web, and at events each year around the world. For more information about us and the show, please check out our website at technologyreview.com. This show is available wherever you get your podcasts. If you enjoyed this episode, we hope you'll take a moment to rate and review us. Business Lab is a production of MIT Technology Review. This episode was produced by Collective Next. Thanks for listening.